0: Welcome, everybody, to the Criminology Academy, where we are criminally academic. My name is Jose Sanchez.
1: And I'm Jen Toslieb.
0: And we are your co-hosts for this podcast.
1: Today, we are speaking with Alana Friedman and Ted Lentz. This episode is part of our graduate student series and covers comprehensive examinations and qualifying papers, which are right around the corner for many people.
0: Ilana Friedman is a third-year PhD student in the School of Sociology at the University of Texas at Austin. She is a socio-legal scholar studying the difference between law as written on the books versus law in action. Her dissertation project is a dual legal exploration and qualitative analysis focusing on the investigation and prosecution of police officers. Elana is a graduate of St. Louis University School of Law, where she also received her master's degree in anthropology and sociology. During and after law school, Elana worked at the law firm of Schwartz, Herman, and Davidson, specializing in federal and state criminal defense and civil rights litigation. She was also a staff associate at the Chicago Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, where she worked on the police accountability project.
1: Ted is an assistant professor in the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. He graduated with his Ph.D. in the summer of 2020, so this is his first year as a faculty member. He started graduate school in the master's program at Texas State University and did his Ph.D. work at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. His dissertation was about how individuals choose crime locations and how these choices generate aggregated crime patterns. He studies geographic crime patterns, decision making, social networks, and gun violence, and teaches introduction to criminal justice, theory and policy, and spatial and network analysis. He also has two children younger than three years old that keeps him and his wife very busy and very tired. Thank you so much for joining us, both of you. Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, thank you. I can wholeheartedly sympathize with that last part, having a three-month-old myself.
2: Okay, congratulations.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I can sympathize with the very busy and the very tired. The very, very tired.
2: Yeah, you're really in the thick of it.
0: Yeah, he's just discovering his personality, and lucky for us, it seems to be on the stubborn side. At
2: night. So, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, uh-huh. so to kind of just give a brief overview of what we're talking about today. We're going to start off with some questions about the overviews of the comprehensive examination and qualifying paper process that Alana and Ted went through, and then talk about preparing for this part of the PhD program, and then really wrap up kind of with actually taking the exams and going through the writing process. So, Jose, I'll let you get us started.
0: All right, thank you. So, our first question for you 2 is so comprehensive exams and qualifying papers can take various forms, depending on what school and what department you're in. And as such, we'd like to, you know, kick things off by asking when as you know what year specifically did you take your comprehensive exam or write your qualifying papers.
3: So I can start. I took mine in the fall of my third year and it was a written exam over a period of a few days, which we'll talk about.
2: Yeah, mine was basically the same. If you So I came into the program with a master's degree and so I had like two years of coursework and then the comp process or the, the qualifying paper process started right after I was done with courses. So for me, it was year three. For people that at UMSL you could come in with a undergraduate degree and so those folks they might start in their fourth year because they might need an extra year of classes but basically the third year.
1: That's early compared to CU. Ours people normally do it in their fourth year at the University of Colorado Boulder in the social department.
3: Oh interesting yeah it's similar to what Todd described that's similar to UT as well so it could be moved up if you've come in with a master's and you wave of some courses at UT but students they typically say that they're during your third year but some students quite frankly they take them in their fourth year their fourth year that's not that rare or abnormal so it kind of just depends on the student's trajectory in the system.
2: Yeah and sometimes too it like class offerings will be staggered in a weird way or something like that so someone is waiting around for you know your required I don't know you know whatever class that wasn't offered and so you kind of got to Wait around, which for some people they appreciate it because they can spend some of that time getting ready for comps.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's not like they're just doing nothing, but it can be frustrating if you're trying to, to move forward quickly. Okay, so, and then so our follow up to that, and you
0: know, you sort of alluded to it, but what did the requirements look like for your comps or, or qualifiers? Like, but what was the basic formatting of the exam and the steps involved
2: to writing qualifiers? You want to go ahead, Lana?
3: Sure, yeah there's no length requirement for the exams you could basically be as exhausted exhaustive or basically include as much detail as you deem appropriate everyone was a little bit different everyone's a little bit different on how they kind of interpret that information i was pretty inclusive enough in my answers where I answered the question, made my point, but there were questions where, I mean, you could have written a full dissertation really on what they're asking. So that's obviously not appropriate (laughs) for the forum, but I ended up writing about 50 pages. And the timeframe is that I got the exam on a Wednesday morning at like nine or 10 in the morning. And then I had to return the exam in its written form, complete, you know, with citations and everything by like four or 5 p.m. And as far as like what the exams look like, so the reading lists, I had two, a day one reading list and a day two reading list. My day one reading list was 52 articles and books and my day two reading list was a little bit narrower in topic and that was 33 resources. And of course, you could bring in outside readings if they were appropriate. So you could cite things that were, you know, related to the topic, but not necessarily on your reading list. And that wasn't required. And then, I mean, the only other thing I would say about that is I had always heard the advice that you should definitely be reading the materials of those that are on the committee. So although they might not necessarily be on your list, I did have some readings from my committee members on my list, but you should be aware of those readings and you should, you know, appropriate cite them. And, you know, beyond that, obviously there were general academic guidelines, like academic integrity guidelines, dishonesty requirements, like, you know, citing your sources, things like that. So those are like the general parameters of what the exam looked like.
1: That's quick. Two days. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah it was yeah it was a grind it was very quick and I can talk you know later about how I like broke those days down and everything too so
2: Alana cool. did you mention was it like when did you take them after you finished your courses like how long did you have to sort of prepare for them
3: yeah so I finished my courses all of my coursework in the spring of let's see 2020 and then I took the summer So I had like May, June, July, August to read, and I planned it that way. So I would have like a considerable amount of time to read. And then my exam, like we at UT, we do it, usually it's in the seventh week of the semester that the exam period is offered. So I had like seven weeks into the fall semester to be able to take or to then, you know, take the exam in the the seventh week. So I basically took the entire summer to read and I was consequently working on my dissertation prospectus at the same time and writing some, but the majority of my summer was spent, you know, reading, note-taking, synthesizing notes, all that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah. And did they give you questions, like possible questions or did they just like?
3: No, I mean, they did as, okay, so that was actually one of the biggest hurdles. And one of the biggest difficulties that I experienced is that, I took my exams broadly in what the department calls crime law and deviance. And unfortunately, no one had taken the exam in crime law and deviance in like maybe four years, five years before me. So the questions, the practice questions, although there were some that were online, they were either not related to my topics, really. Like they were more focused on the courts specifically, and I'm more focused on policing. Or they were like, so they were like not relevant really to what I would possibly be asked or they were like very outdated. They didn't include a lot of the materials like the sources that were on my list. So my committee members made it clear that I would not be asked something that I wouldn't be able to answer. That was something they were obviously very generous about that and they tailored the questions that I was asked to my reading list. But that also is then not really sufficient for someone who's not studying off of my reading list. So that's what I was experiencing when I didn't really have a lot of questions that were as relevant to what I was, you know, reading on. Yeah. So that's kind of where I landed on that. Sorry, I didn't mean to like... No, 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 that's great. Questions. <laughs> I was just yeah, deep. yeah.
1: No, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Ask each other questions. We're fine with that.
2: Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about at UMSL, the qualifying papers. So obviously it's very different than a test. You, you have nothing to study for. Basically, you have to write... In my experience, you had to write two publishable, quote-unquote, publishable papers. One was broadly a theoretical paper, so there, you know, no data, and the other is empirical. So you had to use some data, whether that's qualitative or quantitative, you could choose. And you had a certain time frame to do it. So the moment you finished your last course to get all your credits for coursework, the clock started. I think you had three months... For to write like a proposal, a one-page proposal for each paper, and then you would submit that, and then you had a total of, I think, like nine months from when you started or finished coursework until both papers were due at the same time. Mm -hmm. You turn them in, there's a committee of three faculty members that would review them, and they would decide whether or not you pass or go for each one. So you can, you know, pass both, which few people do. You can fail both. You could pass one and fail the other. I'm sorry, they called it pass and no pass, not <laughs> okay. pass and no pass. And then, and then they would give you feedback, like, like a review if you were writing a journal article. And then to kind of mimic the revise and resubmit process, you would, you know, make revisions to your papers. And then I think you, you'd write like a memo as well to kind of respond to the comments and tell, tell them where, you know, what you changed And then you had, I think there was four months for that. So the whole thing took a a little over a year to finish up. And let's see. So I said, yeah, as far as quality goes, or I should say, as far as topics go, anything that's relevant to criminology was what you could do.
1: It's really broad.
2: Yeah, it's very broad. And so in some ways, it's frustrating for people who kind of like, you know, a reading list and they like you know, everything kind of laid out, this was very, it's like, you can do whatever is in your topic area. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of nice, because you didn't have to study broadly, you could just focus on writing papers that you're interested in. So on the one hand, you got two supposedly publishable papers out of mm-hmm. the process, which is nice, because that kind of helps you for the job market and stuff, if you're going in academics, mm-hmm. or like a research job. But, yeah, it has its its drawbacks, too. I mean, the, the idea that the paper is publishable is very subjective, and it really depends on the composition of the committee. So especially, I think the hardest paper for most people is the theoretical one, because to make a publishable piece, we all know that you have to make a contribution, some kind of novel idea or way of looking at things. That's hard to do theoretically. It's super hard. And... So I think that the guidelines for the theoretical were a little bit more lenient than they were for the empirical piece, which they really wanted you to do something new. Yeah, it's a very different kind of test of your abilities as a scholar. It's And there's pros and cons to that versus doing the regular like comps test. But I preferred, I was happy that they had made the switch over to the qualifying papers because I really liked having two things that could be sent out to journals kind of at the end.
1: Yeah. And it like, sounds like it mimics the peer review process. So if you don't have experience with that, you get it through your program.
2: Yeah, very much so. And, and so the other thing, so there's the comps committee and then you also have your own advising committee who, you know, you kind of throughout your, you know, right when you get right, when you start the program, you get assigned three people, three faculty members, and then you can kind of, you know, sub people in and out and sort of make it fit with what you're working on and your, your style and stuff like that. And they're super helpful, obviously, during the comms process, they can help you, you know, with, you don't get a reading list, but they can help you create reading lists or, you know, help you narrow down your, your research question for your papers and stuff like that. So you're not all alone, you definitely have a committee to help you and, and I think so this doesn't really matter, I guess, but two up to two of the members on your like advising committee could also be members on the, the comps committee. So you can't just have the comps committee be your advising committee. You had to, there has to be a little bit of independence.
3: Yeah. And so you should, I'm not sure if I heard this correctly. So basically in your process with the two different papers, you should expect to get like a quote unquote R&R where you have to then revise your, your submissions to during the comps period then?
2: That should be the expectation yeah, that you have. Interesting. Um, very few people have passed both. It's happened where they've passed both right away and they don't have r to deal with. But that's rare. I think, I think part of it is even if it's really good, I think they still would like you to go through that process because it's, I mean, it's part of the training. It, right. you know, how else do you get training that way it, other than, you know, working with a faculty member maybe or submitting your own stuff if you have time but yeah that's really the expectation is that you're gonna get an R&R on your at least one of your papers and then you have four months to make your revisions.
1: Cool. All right so our next question and Ted you've kind of started to allude to it is this like frequent discussion at least when I was starting to prep for comps surrounding like what if you completely fail this requirement like what happens you know I always heard like, oh, you're kicked out of your program from people who like don't completely know or haven't gone through it. And so I'm curious in your programs, was failing the exams and like the consequences of it discussed? And if so, what are the consequences of failing this program requirement?
3: Yeah, similarly to you, Jen, it's not explicitly stated. If you can fail, it's more of like a general rumor. So the general advice that I got from everyone that I talked to was something along the lines of, you'll be fine. And that's basically in an effort to like assuage any anxiety, I think, or concern that students are feeling. So yeah, informally through grad students, there were rumors, but mostly they related not to failing, to outright failing. It was along the lines of that you had to like revise something or rewrite a particular question or clarify an answer. And that was, I mean, I think it was basically to suggest that if, if you failed, that's an indication of a severe lack of preparedness that you should have had going into the exam and not a strong fit for the program. But, you know, generally, I didn't receive anything explicit, I don't think, about like what happens if you fail, always like, no, 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 like you're going to be fine. That's it. So yeah, nothing about explicitly about failing.
2: I'm not sure what's like I can't remember what's on the books as far as like what the policies are, but so definitely when I first got there, all of the advice was very similar to what Alana was saying. It's like you'll be fine, don't worry, like no one's really failed. Well, I think two people failed right before me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. They got no pass after their their revisions and they were asked to leave the program. Hmm. one of them returned yeah one person returned and basically they were returned and they had to enroll in whatever credit is for for the qualifying papers and then they were supposed to write two new papers so it couldn't they couldn't just revise their old ones they had to write two new papers i don't know how they did i mean with everything that was going on with covid and stuff I was like out of touch with everybody and I was like yeah. finishing my dissertation. So, so I'm not sure what happened, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it, I was under the impression that like, yeah, n- you know, nobody fails, but then some people did. And then it was like, oh wow, this can happen. And they do actually ask you to leave. I mean, you can try again.
1: Which is good.
2: It is good. Yeah. But I think you have to take, I think, I don't know if there's like a period of time that you have to wait. Or if you can just re-enroll the next semester or something. Okay. I'm not really sure. Yeah, yeah. but it, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't feel very encouraging. Uh- <laughs>
1: no, I mean, that's like, you know, most people when I was taking it, I got the same, like, advice. Like, you're not going to fail. Like, don't even worry about it. But people have failed them in our program. But for the most part, I think... I'm pretty sure it's you and Jose, correct me if I'm wrong. If you do fail, you can retry the exam. And then if you fail again, they ask you to leave, but it's like you get a redo. So at least it's not like super
3: daunting
0: mm-hmm.
3: the whole thing.
0: Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's yeah. what
3: it is. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, I think it's pretty similar for UT as well. I think the other thing sort of in this, in this conversation about failing is that, Generally through comps, I was under the impression, that I, I received from my mentors, that really a time to demonstrate your knowledge, and demonstrate how you're viewing the field, you know what you're thinking about the readings, and in the text. And so, if you've spent time reading, if you've spent time thinking about what you're reading, and letting the material marinate, that in my opinion. It's not very difficult to come away with, you know, a ded- once you've undertaken a dedicated period of reading time to digest the material and having thoughts of your own on the matter. And that's what I like, that's how I approach the exam too, was like demonstrate what I think material, kind of flex your expertise now, taking this time to read the material, reflect on it, you know, offer some new kind of view or ideology on it. And if you can do that, if you have some kind of semblance of coherent thoughts in your head, like you're going to be, then you're going to be fine. If you're fundamentally unable to articulate some thoughts, then yeah, that's like an indication of maybe a lack of preparedness or something, which is a problem. But beyond that, like if you can, you know, talk about the readings and where you disagree or like conflicts within them, then you should be good to go.
0: Totally. Yeah, I think the advice that I've been getting, because I'll be comping soon, is when you get your question, you know, read it carefully and make sure you answer the entire question, right? Like, don't just ignore part of the question, but like, even, maybe even more importantly, like, plant a flag and then defend that flag. Like, that's what people want to see. Like, can you make an argument and then can you defend your argument, right? Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, I think if you meet those requirements, answer the question fully and then make a nice coherent argument, you're generally fine. That's my, my feeling.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I feel like Ted, the same thing would be for these qualifying papers, like figure out what you're arguing for and what you're trying to do in the paper and do it well. And you're probably going to be fine. I would imagine.
2: Yeah. And I think one of the things too, with qualifying papers, just kind of a little bit of philosophy behind that approach too, is that a lot of people, So I've heard, I don't know a lot of people, but so I've heard a lot of people get, like, struggle with the dissertation phase. They get sort of stuck in this, like, perpetual dissertation. And I think that qualifying papers is kind of supposed to help. It's not, not like to weed people out, but just to kind of, like, help you to realize what you're going to have to do in the dissertation, which is, again, make a novel contribution to the literature. And Mm -hmm. if you really struggle to do that in the, in the qualifying papers, it kind of saves you from the years and years that some people spend, you know, in their dissertation, and kind of helps people move on, I guess, like helps them see like, okay, maybe this isn't for me, you know, a lot of people can do well, you know, you've made it this far in college. You are good at taking tests. You're good at regurgitation. You're good at quote-unquote critical thinking. But doing something new takes a little bit of creativity. It takes something else. It's it's a different dimension that you're not as good at flexing. You know, it's not about just flexing your knowledge. It's kind of about I don't know, it's something else. And so I think that's kind of what the qualifying papers is tapping into a little bit to help people see that side of things. And then, you know, for students who come in, say, with an undergraduate degree, and after two years of coursework, you have a master's, and then you take comps. And it's kind of like that transition, like, do I really want to do this? You know, am I up for this kind of thinking? Is this like what I want to do or not? And I think that's part of the philosophy behind the qualifying papers as well. So... You've, Ted,
0: you've actually touched on this a little bit, but so we want to ask you about committee and forming your committee, how many members were in your committee. And Ted, you mentioned there was three, and you said up to two could be from your advising team. But Ilana, if you could tell us a little bit more about what it was, how it was like for you putting a committee together for your comps.
3: Sure. Yeah. So I had five members on my committee and there can be virtually the, I mean, the limit does not exist, I think, as far as like how much overlap there is. Ted, you know, was saying about two committee members. They can, our dissertation committee and our comps committee can be the same thing if it works out that way. Doesn't have to be. The reason that I had five was because these were like the most related faculty members in my department to my reading lists and therefore the people that should be reading my answers. So they were so they were basically the faculty members that were associated with my subject area, which was crime law and deviance in the department. For others that had more interdisciplinary reading lists, they could have committee members that specialized in health or in networks or in demography or whatever that like you know other tangential subject could be but generally because mine involved the criminal legal system broadly and policing i had faculty members that specialized in those areas on my committee and there were 5 of them
0: did you have to have 5 or what was the minimum
3: that's a great question i have no idea probably around 3 or 4 i think it would be it would be in my opinion kind of strange or abnormal to have, you know, any, to just have three. I think there's probably a minimum requirement written in the bylaws, bylaws of the department. I haven't read those bylaws, but there's probably a minimum requirement that you would want to have just for diversity of voices. And I will say that the diversity of voices actually, even though I was in a pretty limited, like, just focus on criminal law and deviance actually raised really interesting debates because we're a sociology department. We are not a criminology or criminal justice department, even though we had people that were trained in criminology or in criminal justice versus like their PhDs in sociology, that debate on my committee and therefore the influence of my reading list was actually very interesting and was definitely something that I had to be aware of when I was typing my answers. And, you know, and I think that's a great lesson to learn from the comps process in general is like recognizing your audience and who you're speaking to and, you know, how people are interpreting information and where their training comes in. That was a process that I had to, you know, reconcile within the writing process as well. So even things like committee formulations can like start to raise these broader debates about who you're speaking to in sociology or who you're speaking to in criminology. So that was just an interesting thing to learn as well. Are
2: you working on dissertation now?
3: Yeah, so throughout when I was, so last summer when I was reading, I was also starting out my dissertation prospectus writing. So I've got my dissertation prospectus done. I just am waiting to defend it. So I'll start to move into, I'm doing like preliminary research stuff now as I wait to defend because I'm kind of just waiting for defense date at this point. So
2: yeah. Yeah, I just, I guess I assume that those debates were going to continue as you work on your dissertation topic. And if not, it's not just about, yeah, it gets even thicker when you have to start dealing yeah. with feedback. Certainly. Yeah. Cause I mean, with, with like comps, it's like you turn in your answers and you're sort of done with dissertation. It's like you turn it in and then they send it back with a bunch of comments. And then you got to reconcile your sociologist, you know, your peer sociologist and your peer criminologist or whatever. And i Assuming that's gonna be
3: Yep. A and for me, it's sociology and legal professional. And as yeah. I've found, basically my dissertation is about, you know, the differences between how sociologists view the law and how lawyers view the law mm-hmm. and those things or legal practitioners in general view the law, right? Like those things can be dramatically different. And that juncture is like basically what I'm studying in society. So we have this way of speaking certain languages when we're talking to certain populations. And that I think is very fascinating. And it doesn't just rear its head during comps or when I'm writing, you know, a dissertation prospectus. It's virtually every day in the world, like police officers speak a different language than prosecutors even speak. So that's something I'm exploring in my fieldwork.
0: We're all five of your members from within your department, because I know at, at CU we. So we have right now we have to have five members, three within our department, and a yeah at least three within the department, and at least one has to be outside of that department
3: for your comps or yeah, for your for, dissertation
0: for comps. Yeah. Uh, so oh, I know, interesting. I know they've, they've there's been sort of whispers of them reducing it to just three members, so you have three primary members and those are usually like the within the department people and you have two secondary readers and one has to be from outside, but or yeah, up to both of them can be from outside. So that's the way that, that our committees are structured.
3: Yeah. Ours are all for comps. Ours are, I think typically all internal to our department, unless there's like some obvious need for it to be outside of the department for dissertation. We are, required to have one external committee member and that person can be external from our department. So still within like UT, like a law professor at UT, I've gone outside of UT and I have a professor from Yale on my dissertation committee. And that's pretty typical to bring in like some kind of outside member from the university to our dissertation committee. Interesting.
1: Ted, were all of your committee members in your department too for comps?
2: Yeah. So for, yeah, for comps, it's, it was pretty much all internal, and so the comps, let's see. So the people who grade the qualifying papers, you don't select them. That's just the faculty are on a rotating basis. And there's always three three members and they they rotate and you have no control over that. What you have control over is your advising committee. So right when you get to um, so you when you first start the program, you were assigned three people, but you could change them out. And then all through coursework and all through, up through dissertation, through the whole thing, you can just... You know, you have an advising committee that you meet with each year at the end of the spring semester, and they also help you through the comps process and through the dissertation. Well, so, yeah,
1: that's different.
2: So, yeah, you can help, you can pick the people that are helping you, but you can't pick the people who are grading you. Okay. And do comp. you know who's going to grade your qualifying papers, or is that like all blind? No, no, you know. You know who's on the committee. Yeah, and there were some like situations too where you would, <laughs> I think I might have even been in this where you wrote your proposals for you know three people and then like someone either left or needed to take a break from the community or something like that so then you wrote proposals <laughs> for one group and then you had to write the actual paper for like you know someone was swapped out so you're like well wait you know how,
3: how do, they do they feel I don't have
2: to do what that person said or like how does that work out but the nice thing is they they're very the faculty were were super helpful and you actually have a meeting with them to discuss like your proposal and then to discuss if you have like the R&R, the revised situation. They sit down and meet with you for like an hour or whatever to talk about their comments. So you don't get that with a journal. So it's kind of nice that you get that. Yeah. Huh, cool.
1: All right. So Ted, our next question is kind of like directly for you. And you've already mentioned the proposals that you have to write beforehand. But we are just wondering if you can talk a little bit more about what that process looks like, like what the proposal looks like, and how you went about writing it.
2: Yeah, so the proposal, so there are two papers, one theoretical, one empirical, you have to write a proposal for each one. And when I was doing it, it was one page single spaced, doesn't include your references. Maybe it didn't it doesn't matter. Well it doesn't matter, but not <laughs> this conversation. It matters when you're writing it. So yeah, you have one page to you know convey your idea about what you want to write your paper about. Yeah, you you have three months to do it. That's kind of what that looks like. I think what did I do in order to do that? I had a different situation than I guess a lot of other people do because I used a paper that I I wrote for a class when I was in coursework and I had sent that out to a journal and it got published. And so when I got to comps, I was like, do you think I can use this paper that's been published to, you know, work as a publishable paper? And they said it's fine, but they said just because it was published doesn't mean that like it's enough to pass because because I don't know, because they had to say that. And so for one of my, one of my proposals was basically the abstract of this paper that I had already written. And then I also, I sort of used a paper that I had written for another class for the theory class, and kind of, you know, adjusted some things based on the feedback from that class, and then from that faculty member during the class, and then submitted that as my second proposal. So I kind of, I mean, it's sort of a general piece of advice, I think, that you probably get all the time is like, oh, try to like, you can't double count stuff. Like you can't cheat, you know. (laughs) You can't like use uh, the same paper for two classes. But in the case of comps and in the case of dissertation, you can usually use stuff that you did in coursework and sort of repurpose it and probably improve it. And that's what I did. And that, that helped like timeline wise, and just like some of the stress of that, like staring at the blank screen, at least I had somewhere to start. I had a lot of references ready. So I guess, you know, we don't, we're not given a reading list, but there might be, you know, different, certainly course papers. If you had to write course papers, like see, I mean, maybe you can repurpose them. I think a lot of times people write papers when they're taking classes and they realize that they hate that topic. And I feel like grad school is a, a lot of checking stuff off the list. Like, okay, I'm not doing that ever again. And a lot of people do that. And I was just lucky that I found a couple things that I was like, yeah, I thought that was interesting. And I'll I'll keep sort of working on that idea.
1: So but, like for the proposals, there wasn't like a structured format. It was just kind of like an abstract that you would think of for a paper.
2: Yeah, basically. Yeah, the format was, that was challenging for the theoretical paper because there are not a lot of theory-only papers out there as good examples that are published. Th- there are, but those are usually called books. And that's too long because I, I didn't mention that both papers had a 30-page limit, which is roughly standard for like a journal article, right around 30 pages or whatever. So anyway, the structure for the theoretical paper was tough because you didn't really know, for the empirical paper, it's simple. You have, you know, intro, lit, review, methods, results, discussion, and you're done for, or something close to that. For a theoretical, it was a little bit more open-ended and people always complained that, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do for this. (laughs) And I think it was even an ongoing debate among the faculty as to what the like standard was and what they should look like. So you really had to rely on your committee members, your advising committee, to sort of help you through that. And the earlier you got them drafts, the better feedback, or the more you got to them to get feedback on before it was due was super important. So Ted, you
0: mentioned you didn't have to do this, but Alana, you had a reading list for your comps, and did you have to put it together yourself, or does UT have standardized lists because I know some departments have standardized listings. So like Arizona State has their corrections reading list that has like a hundred readings. So did you have to put yours together from scratch?
3: Yes, I did. And that was definitely one of the most taxing parts of the process. And it was just that it was a process. So for CLD for Kremlin Deviants, generally it seems as if the students will design their own lists and This kind of mimics like what we're interested in broadly. So I but therefore it becomes highly variable depending on the person. And this kind of goes to what I was talking about before with like how things don't really translate to, you know, someone else taking comps right now isn't necessarily going to be able to answer the questions that I was asked because their reading lists are gonna look different. So for CLD, there's no set reading lists and the development of the list can create a lot of contention as to like how specific or broad we're looking at the criminal justice system. Like, are we only looking at historical developments? Are we looking at contemporary works as well? Are we looking at theory or are we just doing like practical readings? And those kinds of debates can number one, make a list super long and it can create a lot of contention within the committee. It's also really Hard to create a list because I'm not, I was not yet an expert. I am still not an expert, I would say. So, how do you know what you're supposed to include if you haven't read it yet and you don't know what to include? So, that was really difficult to have to deal with. So, basically, what I did is I looked at students' previous lists from the list that I could gather and I basically created these like really, really, really long lists. And it was an iterative process where I sent it to the chair of the comms committee. And a couple other faculty members and they basically bounced ideas off of each other, you know, revised some things, took took some things out, added some things that they thought, got it back to me, and then we would like limit it, you know, a few more readings in each specific section, but it was very much an iterative process and it took time to develop a list. And, you know, by the end, there are still disagreements on the committee as to what should be included and what wasn't included and things like that. But it was actually very difficult to do because, you know, as a second year grad student, I don't know what I should be reading, really. I don't know the lay of the land and the state of the field. And so to ask me to put together a list is like a weird question. That's a weird ask. So I needed a lot of input from faculty and thankfully they were, you know, more than willing to give it to me. But that kind of a thing takes time. So it's just something to factor into the process.
1: Yeah, my experience was very similar. I think my first list that I put together, I completely got rid of and started from scratch because I was like, this isn't relevant. And my advisor was like, what are you doing? <laughs> we should, You need to do it this way instead. But all of my committee members were super helpful, like you were saying, Alana. And yeah, it took time though. And then going through everyone, all five of my members to make sure they were all in agreement, that took time as well.
2: I definitely feel, though, I mean, just listening to this process that you're talking about, I thought that it was given to you, the list was given to you, but this, like, you searching for it, it it seems like a a big pain for you to do, like, on the front end, but I feel like on the back end, you're, like, kind of cruising for, like, dissertation, and your entire, like, research program from here on out is probably going to stem from you know, that core reading list that you developed a long time ago when you didn't know anything. But like, you've already went through the work to really scour for articles and books and and stuff. So I I feel like you can repurpose that. So it's not complete waste. I mean, I feel like, I don't know, that feels a lot better to me than just getting handed a list of things that may not be relevant, you know, relevant to what you are interested in. And then it really is kind of feels like a wasted experience. But at least this way you, you had the, it was kind of self-driven.
1: Totally. And I mean, I tailored mine Well, I had three lists and one of them was like completely tailored to what I thought I was going to do my dissertation on, which has now changed because of COVID restrictions on data. But yeah, it was completely set up to move forward with my dissertation, which
3: was super helpful in getting Mm -hmm. those readings under my belt already. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, It's interesting, so my day one reading list was like the criminal justice system broadly defined, some theoretical backgrounds, things like that, movement throughout, you know, mass incarceration, collateral consequences, all that kind of stuff. My day two list was specifically to policing. So I had like historic policing publications, I had like racial imbalances in regards to policing, like contemporary policing, ethnographies, things like that. And through this process i mean the comps process in general was absolutely instrumental to the formulation of my dissertation prospectus but actually my dissertation prospectus is more so on prosecutors now than on than focusing strictly on police so it was really really helpful for my lit review the day one list at least was extremely helpful for my lit review but the day two list i mean it's great because I've read a ton of stuff relating to policing, but actually my dissertation is more about legal decision-making than like focusing on policing specifically. So the reading list formulation conversation can like really factor into your dissertation prospectus, but it can also pull you in like a very specific direction that's not necessarily related to your dissertation prospectus. So it's an interesting like give and take the way it works. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I mean, just to give you a little bit more, like, so now this is my first year as a faculty member. And so I taught last semester, I taught Intro to Criminal Justice. I hadn't taken Intro to Criminal Justice since I was an undergraduate. There was no like Intro to CJ class at the master's or the PhD level. There was just kind of like, I don't know, a combination of classes or whatever that kind of, you know, created a class that was like that. And I didn't even know where to start as far as teaching. I sort of had to go create a reading list for myself to be like, okay, you know, of course I used a textbook as well, which helped, but, and now I'm teaching theory and it's like, you know, going back to like reading lists. And even though you're not going to assign some of the higher level stuff to undergraduates that you had to read in graduate school. But yeah, like that would have been super helpful to me, honestly, to have like a list of a broad list of readings to kind of go back to, so it might still serve you in the future. You just have, if you're going into yeah. academics, you know, if, yeah. if you're going to, want to teach. Certainly, yeah. And as
0: you were going through your lesson and reading, what was sort of your process for notating while you were reading your articles and, and your books?
3: Yeah, so the first thing that I did, so whether I had read the text or not before, some of the reading I was familiar with through coursework, but I went through and I read it again. And, you know, I would highlight it, briefly notate in the margins, things like that. So I would read, you know, a document or like a a research article or I'm a pretty fast reader. So I could read like a book a day. And for my master list, my master reading list, I had like subheadings. So, you know, topics were divided up by like collateral consequences and all the readings on collateral consequences were under that. So for the collateral consequences section of my reading list, for example, I created a new Word document that just had those readings in it. And for each citation, for each you know book or article, I would write out the notes that I had and I would focus on, these are the different bullet points. So I would have like the takeaway or the main points. And that would be like the hypothesis, the research question, the main findings. The next one was the theoretical framework that they were that the authors were operating under keywords and this would include like novel terms that they had come up with so original new terms that they you know were introducing to the literature i would talk about the next bullet point was critiques or limitations of the text the next thing which i found extremely helpful was who they were in dialogue with so who are they talking to like you know Who is Becky Pettit talking to? And who is Bruce, like Bruce Western, who are they talking to? Are Are they referring in conversation to the same kinds of authors back and forth? Or who does this remind me of? I would talk about the data and the methods of the article. So what kind of methods were they using? What kind of data were they using to answer their research questions? And then any like supplemental notes. That was the last bullet point. So I did this for each article. I took those notes for each article and I did this that was like the, ch- the main section of my summer was doing those kinds of note taking, reading, things like that. And then about two to three weeks out from the exam, from the start date of the exam, I printed all of them out because I learned in hard copy and I just read them through routinely, just all of my different notes, just started reading and I would highlight and I would underline and I would further put notes on those notes. And then I started to organize my thoughts in kind of a master document some people pre-write I've heard some people pre-writing I actually heard about people pre-writing like three days before the exam and I hadn't really understood what I was doing as pre-writing and I started freaking out some people pre-write some people don't pre-write what I did was I documented like the major themes that I was seeing coming through from the articles another thing that I did is I listed out all of the different reform strategies that I was seeing because I thought I might get a question on how am I going to reform the criminal legal system? How would I suggest reforms? So I just started listing out reforms that I was seeing routinely in the articles. I did a section on data and methods. So I had all of my, all the different methods that had been implored. I started kind of synthesizing those and like, how can this method be used to answer this kind of question? What is it not able to answer? What's it really good at answering? And so that was like the main... Those were like my main ways that I pre-wrote. And then I just, again, just was reading, reading, reading through all of my notes for like two to three weeks before the exam. And by exam time, I was like feeling great. I had all my notes organized, they were all in a binder, they were highlighted, all that kind of stuff. That was like my major process that I went through and I can clarify any of those details as you would like.
1: I did something really similar to you, actually, now that we're talking. I had, while I was going through all of the readings, I had, you know, my set of questions that I asked, which were really similar to what you were saying, Alana. And then I didn't budget my time as well as it sounds like you did. Uh, So I finished reading like two days before the exam and I wanted to take time off. So I spent like half a day just going through everything, trying to synthesize it and put it together. But I think the who we're each author talking to, that would have helped that process go a lot smoother. So that sounds like a great idea. So yeah, I did not budget my time as well. And that is one thing I wish I would have done So for everyone listening.
3: Do yeah. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, and I've heard too, with the budget your time thing, I've heard that the last like month, if you have that much time, or the last like two to three weeks, should be used not to read new material but to actually start synthesizing your notes and I (laughs) admittedly understand for some people that means sacrificing a few readings and I I've gotten the question before like have people sacrificed readings I mean I think like that's a strategic choice and I think it You probably should be reading everything on your list. I am definitely not going to offer the advice that you shouldn't be reading things on your list, but I do think it's really important to take a step back in anticipation of the exam and read your notes. Read, you know, just start to synthesize and at least know where things are that you've notated so you can directly go back to it during the exam and just be organized in that capacity. So yeah, that's what I would say about budgeting time
2: on that note as like for people doing qualifying papers if you have to do any data analysis which in in mine you had to do an empirical paper most people had to do quantitative because collecting new qualitative data could take at least nine months so most people either had to rely on qualitative data that were already collected before they even started comps or So oftentimes it was like a faculty member's data that they were using or doing a quantitative project. Yeah. Kind of related to time, the time idea.
1: Totally. I actually hadn't even thought about that because yeah, collecting data takes a long time.
2: So yeah. And that's what trips people up for. They'll, you know, they have this really great idea and, you know, they know how to get the data, but they it takes forever to get mm-hmm. data it, and unless it's publicly available, it takes forever. It always does. And so, um, that'll trip people up and then they're kind of like, they write in proposal and then after the propo- you know, they'll do the three month proposal and then they'll have like six months to write their papers. And it's like, yeah, you gotta, not enough time. Yeah. It, it just, but you don't know, you, I don't know. It's hard to know that it takes as long as it does for like a bureaucracy to give mm-hmm. you data.
3: <laughs> yeah totally
2: Forever. <laughs> yeah
0: definitely and I can att- attest to that so I'm right now writing my third year paper which is one of our requirements we have to write a paper that should be publishable by our third year and I'm using all original data but I've been collecting this since mid 2019 and it's taken me and that was observational data and it's taken me about five months to collect Enough interviews to have you know a, a good paper. So it really it, it really does take a lot.
2: Yeah, and another. This is kind of like honestly, it's a quantitative bias in the field. But like another challenge that students have run into with a qualitative project is that oftentimes your collection of data. I don't know how you're collecting your data and what you're collecting is super important and qualitative. And it's sort of driven, sometimes it's driven by stuff that's happening along the way. So if you're doing interviews and you're doing like some purpose of sample or some snowball sample or something like that, and then, you know, you've been collecting data for two years and then, which is great. You have all these data, but then you get to your proposal and the committee goes, Oh no, that's not like, you know, that's not going to work. Then you spent all this time and now you're frustrated. And people that have tried qualitative projects have run into maybe not exactly that kind of scenario but that's sort of the idea is that it's just you know you're working on like a grounded theory kind of framework and then you know but the process is really kind of set up to do like a deductive you know here's a proposal because there's a theory and i'm going to test this and here's the data and then they can say no don't use those data use these data and then you're doing qualitative it's like the other way around and it yeah so
1: Talk to your advisors early on.
2: Yeah, yeah. Talk, <laughs> talk to them early and like it, I don't know. I think the process should be probably be changed. So there's not that quantitative bias.
1: Yeah. All right. So let's move into then taking the exams and writing the papers. So first off, how did you approach like sitting down and either writing the comps on the couple of days that you have or the longer process of writing the qual? qualifying papers what was that process like for both of you
3: yeah so for me I opened the document when I received it the morning of on on Wednesday morning and I read through all the questions right away and I picked which ones I was going to go with that took me probably about like 30 30 30-ish minutes and then I started to outline answers immediately because I knew that I was in a I was under a time crunch and that's part of the game with the with how our our exam is laid out so the initial outlining of answers took about an hour and a half. So I've been working for about two hours then. And I got up and like, you know, thought everything through, stretched a little bit, and then like got immediate gut reactions to the questions on where I could take my answers. So I started to write like more extensively right then for the next like two-ish hours. And I was jumping around somewhat between questions but I would like go hard at one question for you know 30 minutes and start writing stuff down and thinking about what sources I was going to cite and where I was going to take that specific answer and then I started to for the second half of Wednesday I really started to go through and write like complete answers then. So that took me the rest of the day. So by the end of Wednesday, my first full day, I had about half of it done. And it was pretty rough. There was still like some serious holes. Citations were nowhere near done. But I had like semblances of answers that I could move forward with in the next day. I can't really remember if I took much. I think I took some of Wednesday night off, but I wasn't like, you know, pulling all-nighters or anything like that. That's not how I operate. By Thursday, again, I was like clearing up answers, making a real definitive case within my answers. So by the end of Thursday, I felt like confident in my answers. I was like basically done writing at that point. By the end of Thursday, I went through and was reading for clarity, everything like that on Thursday night. And then waking up Friday, knowing that I had this has to be done by by four or 5pm, whatever it was. Friday, I budgeted the full day to do final edits, revisions, and read-throughs. And then I think it's important, you know, depending on how you do your citations, I use Zotero, which I think is a godsend. If you don't know about Zotero, look it up as a, you know, little plug, but I use Zotero, and so it makes citations much faster and much easier, but I still dedicated, like, half of Friday just to citations because it does take you a while, and this is an academic piece of writing, and even if it's, you know, two and a half days it has to be academic quality and you have to cite your sources because that was something that was made very clear to me so i needed to have time dedicated time for you know citation revisions and things like that and you know going through books pulling them off the shelves and going to a specific page or whatever it was that takes time so that was like generally my process and then i think i turned it in by like 3 p.m i didn't really go down to the wire but it you know got relatively close. And by the end, I wrote about 50 pages, double spaced, just to give everyone kind of a indication of how much I wrote. It depended on the questions. Some questions were a little bit longer. So they would, you know, be 10 pages for a single question. And some, you know, were like six or whatever. But that was like generally how I went about the comps days.
2: How many questions you might have said it before? How many questions did you have to answer? And how many were, did you have to choose from?
3: So, I think I ended up answering five or six questions, but each question had like subparts to it. So, one question could have like two or three subparts to it. So, there were like questions embedded within questions. So, the one thing that was really nice about my comps committee and my chair in particular is they offered a lot of variety in my questions and I told them I wanted variety because I didn't want to get into the comps period and have a question asked of me and be me being like, oh my gosh, I have no idea how to answer that question. I could pick and choose a little bit. So for each, there were like, I can't remember if it was five or six sections and within each of those sections, there were one, two or three questions that I could choose from I also knew going into the exam that I would have to answer some kind of questions on methods. And that basically, I mean, the methods questions like kind of differed a little bit, but I knew in some capacity I would have to answer a question on methods, but I, I ended up answering, I th- I can't remember if it was five or six questions. And then, you know, two or three sub questions within each question.
2: Wow. What a couple of days. That's... <laughs> no yeah. 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 Okay, so the question is, how did you actually go about writing the papers? Hmm. Well, so I kind of mentioned before that I was fortunate that I had already had a couple of papers to work from, which was nice. But honestly, I don't know, writing research papers is just like an ongoing, I mean, still doing it, and I'm still trying to figure out what works best. I'm actually taking like a writing intensive workshop right now. And what the person is having us do is write... The methods first. So typically, you, I don't know, like if you're doing quantitative work, it's probably different for qualitative. I'm not as familiar with that process. But with quantitative, you know, you have, you probably kind of know what theory you're working under, you have some research questions, you're analyzing data, you have some findings, you're like, great, this is a great, this is going to be a great paper. So what she had us do is write the methods first followed by the results, followed by the discussion. Well, actually, it was methods, results, conclusion, discussion, and then like your intro and lit review. And actually, the very first thing was a a lay audience summary of your paper. So it kind of like really helped you narrow down in simpler terms than you're probably going to use in the paper, like what you're doing and why you're researching that. And that's worked really well. I don't know. I've been able to because i don't know i've started writing papers in all different sections a lot of times i start with an introduction and that goes horribly i write 17 different really bad introductions i never find a good one and then i just start writing other stuff and then i at some point i come back to it and it turns out also not great but it turns out so
1: Introductions it's, are so difficult to they write
2: are, for me. yeah they are and i think that's the point is start with the easiest thing the easiest thing at least in quantitative is methods because it's already like, there's so many examples out there and it's very almost, I mean, you can't copy and paste, but you're nearly copy and pasting like the structure of the methods, you know, it's like, Oh, here's my sample, here's my measures or whatever. So start with the thing that is much more straightforward. And then I think it kind of helps from there, but for the empirical paper, you have to analyze data first. So that's usually where people start is they write their proposal first. And I don't know, there's not a whole lot of good advice for a proposal because it's basically like an introduction. <laughs> and those are hard to write. So you gotta, you know, it's like a funnel. You gotta start really broad and get more specific till you get down to the research question. Because ideally in the proposal, you haven't done the research yet. You're proposing to do it. And... So yeah, it's just, for me, I'm a slow writer and I'm slow because it's an iterative process and I rewrite a paragraph a hundred times before I find one that's good enough to fill the place for a while. And so I just have to, I just keep writing. But I think, you know, everyone's process is different. Some people like to do things in like small chunks. Like, you know, I don't know, I've talked to people who write one page a day or something. You know, after a month, you got 30 pages and that's great. I don't write like that. I kind of, I get into an idea and I just work on it, like not day in and day out, but like anytime I'm working on work stuff, like I'm just kind of focusing on that. And I try not, I don't like spread myself too thin because even when I walk away, I'm sitting there thinking about it while I'm doing the dishes or whatever. So I kind of like, I like the like intensive writing style more than the like, spread it out over time and but then I do like a period in the middle to like set it down for like a week and then come back to it. So obviously you can't do that if you're doing comps, but if you're doing qualifying papers, you have that luxury that you can write something and then let it set for a while and then come back to it. And that's basically what I've what I've always done with writing. And it's slow and eventually I, I've gotten there a few times. So yeah, I, I don't know what else to say about the process.
1: Yeah, that's great.
0: No, I think that's perfectly okay. We know a slow writer that's also very prolific. Yeah. <laughs> so, and Ted you sort of touched on this a little earlier about, you know, maybe changing the bias a little bit in, in the papers, but so our next question for you guys is is there anything that you liked about your comps and your qualifying papers the process and is there anything that you maybe wish you could change about the process
2: sure i'll start so i didn't mind that i think there is sort of a qualitative bias it's bigger than just the you know qualifying papers it's sort of a field thing it didn't affect me because i don't really do qualitative research but that doesn't mean that that that's not something i you know i th- i think could could be done better. I like, you know, I've talked about sort of the philosophy of doing qualifying papers versus comprehensive exam. I sort of subscribe to that philosophy. If I was gonna create a program today, I would probably choose the qualifying papers because I think, I do think that having that introduction to that sort of creative side of the writing or of the research process is really, it's not only good to see what that's like, so that people can decide if, you know, this is sort of for them. But also, I thought it, it helped switch it up. It was I was tired of just writing what the professor wanted you to, you know, answer this question. And it was nice to kind of, well, you write the question and then answer it. And so I really like that freedom and flexibility, but I can understand that some people don't like all that freedom and flexibility. They kind of, but I appreciated that. I like being able to work on a specialized topic, but also... See the benefit of reading a little bit more broadly, because like I said, now like going to teach and stuff, it's like I feel like I have to reacclimate myself to a lot of you know theories even or readings that I hadn't been exposed to at the graduate level that I've kind of had to circle back to. And I like I've said, I, I appreciate having products at the end of the qualifying papers. That's super nice. My my theory paper started as a class paper. You know, I used it in comps and then it really didn't get incorporated directly into my dissertation, but it certainly was related and got me thinking in the right way and, and sort of like worked out a lot of kinks that I needed to have worked out. And the other paper I had already gotten published, but I, most people send their, their comp off to get, to get published after it's done. And that's super great because if you're going in academics, publications are, are important.
3: Yeah, I mean, I actually look back at the time the comps process as really a privilege. I think, you know, it's a privilege to be able to learn for a living, and I think sometimes we lose sight of that through the rigors of grad school. For me, just spending the summer reading and getting grounded in, you know, the theories and learning new things, what people have done research on, it was taxing. It was it was very emotionally taxing, I'm not going to lie, but it was really worth it. And you know it was very interesting to be reading you know historical policing publications and have the George Floyd protest going on at the same time and that was actually one of the most difficult parts about the process was reading things from 40 or 50 years ago <laughs> and not seeing much change in you know when we're looking outside to the work and the activism that's going On in many of the cities that we live in, so that was actually really difficult to deal with at the time, and very like provoking of some kind of existential (laughs) crisis. On like, you know, what am I doing? Like, is anything meaningful that we're that we're actually producing? That was very difficult. But as I said before, you know, the process was really instrumental to the formulation of my dissertation prospectus and how, in particular, how I view the historical background or the socio-legal development of the criminal justice system. So I got time to, you know, get the lay of the land, like what people had researched before, how people were considering these questions. So that part I really enjoyed. And you know, it might be kind of nerdy, I guess, to say this, but I read the questions on the day of the exam and I, and I emailed the chair of my exam right after and I was like, huh, this is going to be fun. Like these are great questions. <laughs> and yeah, I, I mean, I think that's like a pretty nerdy thing to do. But at the same time, like, we've got to find joy in even the, even the dimmest of places, I feel like. And, you know, it's, it comps a lot of times as compared to like hazing. And it's not something enjoyable. It's not something we want to do. But if you can try to find even a tinge of enjoyment in the process, like that will help it. Along, So it was nice to be able to like actually riff on some ideas that I had gathered and demonstrate my knowledge like that was like a nice thing to be able to do through this like month, months long slog of reading and note taking and start to display some of like my interdisciplinary training that was nice to do. Some things that I would ask for for improvement is, like I said before, not putting so much pressure on students to write our own lists. The process at UT, especially within CLD, was very student-driven. It still is very student-driven, and that's a task that none of us want to do. So I think some kind of, like, standardization in the process could be nice. However, you know, having said that, like, the specificity and the the uniqueness to my reading list were really cool because then i could you know talk about things that were unique to what i was reading and my approaches to the law and to society and again it was like really hard to have outdated or impractical or limited questions as practice you know i had, i've taken the bar exam before and there's like a giant question bank like through your bar prep materials that you have access to millions of questions and that's just totally different in the comps process and so that causes a lot of anxiety I think for students because they're very scared that they're not going to be able to answer a question because they just don't know what to expect of the exam so having you know dedicated resources for question banks or whatever it is like previous exams and there's some of that there's definitely some of that but sometimes they're just wholly impractical and so that creates a lot of anxiety for students in the preparation process so something like that could have been really beneficial for me
1: I think it's funny that you said that you like enjoyed your questions. I remember, so I read my questions in sections. We had to do three different topics and I started with my hardest one, which I would not recommend to everyone because (laughs) I like literally had a panic attack the first day and wrote nothing and I did not enjoy the first day, but it got better after that once I was just like, you're ready for this. But yeah, different experiences. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean the questions like the questions that were asked of me it was it was clear that I would be able to answer them and that I could like really go hard at them and you know really kind of demonstrate what I had been thinking about and they were clearly written for Alana Friedman so there wasn't anything that I felt you know unprepared for it was more like all right like if we're gonna do this we're gonna do this and I'm gonna like show you guys what I'm thinking and you know I'm gonna obviously ground it in the literature but this is gonna be like this is gonna be fun so
1: I mean mine were definitely written for me too but yeah just different first day experiences I like don't (laughs) even remember the first day and I don't want to but anyway, okay, our last question for both of you is, do you have any last pieces of advice, tips, or like closing thoughts about this process?
2: Sure, I'll go. I've sort of brought a couple of things up already. The first I think would be to kind of, if you can repurpose stuff throughout your graduate career. I, I know everybody tells you that. And then a lot of people, it's just hard. It's not like you didn't try. You, you tried to repurpose, but it just, you know, You checked a lot of stuff off the list, and I think, like, combined with this idea that you should try to repurpose things or you know build off of things you've already done, is you know see it as really checking stuff off the list, and that's important too. Like, figuring out what you don't want to do is maybe just as important, if not more important, than figuring out what you do want to do. Because I mean, I don't know about other people out there, but I chose this career path generally because I didn't want to do stuff I didn't want to do, and so. I had checked other things off the list and I think like that's really important even in this capacity as academics or researchers or whatever it's, that's important too. The second thing I would say is, you know, as far as your advisory committees go, at least in my experience, don't be afraid to like swap people out, try different people, you know, don't just like pick up the first box of shoes that, that seems like it fits because it might not like when you start walking around in them and don't be afraid to swap them out so like at you know in my experience faculty aren't like really hurt or something if you take them off you know in some you know sometimes especially if they're younger faculty they got a lot of stuff to do and the more senior faculty got a lot of stuff to do too so sometimes like it's not such a big deal that like you remove them from your committee it's it's not it's not always a bad thing and it can be really helpful for you to find people that you work well with because it can really slow you down if you have people on your committee that you don't work well with. So be honest with yourself and be honest with them and I think it'll be fine. The last thing I'd say is, you know, because it's qualifying papers and not the comps exam process, it really is kind of about doing something new or creative. I call it creative, maybe other people call it something different, but. I feel like it's definitely a creativity process of, you know, coming up with a new idea or trying to look at something in a different way. And something that I heard early on as a grad student was read outside the field. You know, people have been harping on the same theories and the same integrated, you know, integration of the same theories over and over again and it's it can be kind of boring and sometimes you get nowhere because it's already been done. And so Reading outside the field can be super helpful. I even took a class in a different department and I just counted it as an, as an elective and that was really helpful. And so it sounds like, like Ilana was talking about a lot of interdisciplinary stuff. That's great that that's already happening. Cause I think it really helps propel like your ideas forward and, and it makes it more fun as well.
3: Yeah. Uh, I really agree with what Ted just said. You know, I think, Regarding comps, I said it before, but it is true, you're going to be fine. If you do the work, you're going to be fine. So even though people say that, like it is the case, like if you do the work, you'll be okay. You're going to be, you're, you know, you're knowledgeable, you're in grad school, so you'll be okay. I think there's two like real things I think that are important that we haven't talked about too, and that's figuring out your learning process and how you learn best and going with it so that can include things like factoring in breaks and mental outlets so i did a lot of exercising i took a lot of exercise breaks in my process that was really important to me and then Knowing that I'm a visual learner and I need to have things in different colors, my notes in different colors, highlighted in different colors, you know, things like that. That's really important to how I learn. And like I referenced before, I learn in hard copy. I could read on the computer screen, but once I was studying my notes, my notes had to be printed out. So those are kind of like intangible little pieces of advice that figuring out those things, those little elements, can be really, really helpful to learning the material. The second thing that I would say is even though comps can seem really dry, if there's a way that you can display your own unique knowledge or background skills or competency in the exam, do that. So I got the advice that, you know, the people that are reading your exam, they know the theories. So simply regurgitating them is not fun for anyone. And it's undeniable that my background as a lawyer really informs how I view law and society and how I view sociology. And so if I could offer you know, a new way that I was thinking about these readings or making an argument or offering a different critique, critique or limitation, Or a new way to read the material, that was something that I could offer on the exam. Now I have to answer, as Jose said, I have to answer the question, right? You got to answer the question that you're asked. But if you can say, you know, some kind of a critique about, you know, the question or about the reading or about, you know, a text that, you know, the text doesn't consider this. And this is why I think it's, you know, kind of weak in that capacity. That's perfectly appropriate for, for the exam. So if there's something that you can, you know, spice it up a little bit, that demonstrates to your committee that you're thinking about these things, that you've really sat and you've marinated with the material, and that just strengthens your exam. So if there's a way that you can flex that, then I think that's an appropriate thing to do too.
1: Totally. Great advice, both of you.
2: <laughs> yeah, spicy is good. I, I like that. That's yeah. a good word for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you both so
0: much for taking the time to talk to us. We really do appreciate it. Is there anything that you guys would like to plug? Any papers that are coming out? Any projects that you might be working on that people should keep an eye out for?
3: No, go ahead, Adam. <laughs> Alana, do you have anything? No, I'm... No, I'm early in the process. I have a law school publication or a law review publication from 2019 that you can find. But in general, you can reach out to me on Twitter or email is a great way to keep in contact. I'd love to hear from you.
2: Yeah, same. Yeah, email is a great way to to get in touch with me. I think I'm on Twitter, but I'm not on Twitter. Oh so, yeah, <laughs> you email. do have
1: a profile.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think I have a profile, and I've been tagged a couple times. Yeah, but I, I don't I don't do too much on there. I probably should. I've been talking about you know building a website stuff that i haven't done so email is a great way to get a hold of me and yeah there's a couple things that might be coming out at some point but you never know
1: well i have all of your information on our website so if anyone's searching for your emails you can find it there
2: great thanks so much for having me
1: yeah thank you this is great thank you guys
2: thank you again yeah good
0: luck
1: thanks you too
0: the criminology academy is available wherever you listen to podcasts make sure to follow us on twitter facebook and instagram at the crim academy if you're on apple Podcasts, please rate review and subscribe alternatively let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website thecriminologyacademy.com and lastly share the crim academy episodes with your friends and family